This morning we are going to have uh, Shar Karsten help us with uh, reading our biblical uh, text, Genesis 17. Genesis 17. Thank you, Shar. Okay. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your generations after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. When he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, 
and circumcised them as God told him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on that same day, and every male in Abraham's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Thank you, Shark. Well, uh... This chapter is a very long chapter, but also important. It's, in fact, it's almost, I will say, this is one of the critical moments in the Old Testament. It's almost like the writing of the U.S. constitutions for our country. You know, it's a critical time when once things are settled, the rest of it is history, we say, you know. So once this chapter 17 is happening in the book of Genesis, everything that follows is basically God unfolding this promise, this covenant. And everything that follows is God's history of salvation and also history of humanity. And changing of the names is important. And in many cultures, it it happens for different reasons. But in the American culture, I think, if you think of a name, you know, one thing is happening here is the change of the name, right? Is marriage, right? When do you change your name? When you marry somebody. And usually in the American culture here, It happens on the wedding day. So the minister has the power to sign with the bride and the groom that marriage certificate. And usually the bride adopts or takes the last name of the groom. And it's a new beginning. Well, it's not like that in all cultures. You see, when I I grew up in Romania, right, so I got married. My first kind of the signing of... Uh, our marriage certificate, it doesn't happen in the church. We ministers in Romania, we don't have the power to sign that. So you have to go to the city hall and you have justice of peace, you know, do, do that for you. So this is in 1992, right? Um, our, oops, our marriage civil union, you know, there. I'm just telling you, we were happier than we look. <laughs> You don't know, but uh, this was just two years after communism, so Romanians are happy on the inside. I <laughs> say that. Um, so that's when the name changed. You know, we were looking at the justice of a peace right now, and she was reading to us the vows and everything else, and the powers that she has to marry us or something like that. And then we were married later on in the church. You know, so this is a civil. So if you think of it, this is a civil marriage. That is followed, sorry, something with a clicker, but I'll try to do it. So, a civil marriage on July 27, followed by a religious ceremony on August 7, right? Felicia still pushes to say, well, we should celebrate both, you know. (laughs) Um, But it's an important start, you know. It's an important start. When you change your name, you have a new identity. You belong to a couple from that point on. You are not, you are belonging to a, a, what we call family. And this is interesting that um, our series and exploring, it says Genesis beginnings. God starts a family. Do you see that? That's the topic of our series. God starts a family. And you think, where is he starting a family? Well, he starts one in the Garden of Eden, right, with Adam and Eve. They start a family. And God tells them, multiply, but they fail, right? They fail. And they multiply, but they fail because the flood is coming. And then is Noah, 
And God makes another covenant with Noah and says, you start and multiply, and Noah fails too. So now God, sort of the third time, starts this thing that is miraculous. It's not any more natural. So God says, I'm going to make a new covenant. And if you want to call the covenant of works the covenant with Adam and Eve, that's okay. But this new covenant that makes with Abraham is based on pure grace. It's the covenant, what we call the covenant of grace, is God's promise. So I guess you can see that covenant is a very important part of this chapter. This is how it starts, right? It says, and Abraham was 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to him and said, when he was 99 years old, it's interesting that between the previous verse and this one, there are 13 years of silence. So Abraham is 99. In the last verse of chapter 16, he was 86 or 85, 86, yeah? 85, yes, 86. Yeah. And Ishmael was born, Ishmael. And Calvin, one of the commentators, you know, during the Reformation, Calvin says, without words, God disapproved what Abraham did by being silent 13 years. The Bible doesn't say that, but Calvin says it's very obvious that for 13 years he did not visit Abraham after he tried to solve and to kind of say, take, take the matters into his hands and say, Lord, I'm not sure what you are doing, but I need a son, so I'm going to go with Hagar And therefore, we have Ishmael. And after 13 years, God comes back and he says, I am God Almighty. God Almighty. First time this is used as a title for God. God Almighty. Nobody knew God by this name. And he says, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. Basically says, because I am who I am. I can, demand, I, I can demand you to be faithful to me and to be blameless. Blameless like the other patriarchs, you know. But you see this God Almighty comes to Abraham. Basically, it's El Shaddai in the Hebrew, right? Maybe you heard of name El Shaddai. It's God who is all-sufficient. He can do all things. He doesn't need anybody. He is the God, the supreme God. And it, it, it happens that it's used 48 times in the Old Testament. Most of it, 31 in the book of Job. Just think of that. The story of Job. And God says 31 times in that book, I am the God who is all sufficient to you. And how much Job needed that, right? But here is used for the first time. And it's maybe helpful to just think of this all-powerful God. All-sufficient God. Just, just to think of how, how you can even address it. In the Greek, the, the Greek translation of the name is Pantocrator, which means ruler of all things. Ruler of all things. So that's how God comes to Abraham and says, I am the ruler of all things. I am the all-sufficient God. And in Latin it says, omnipotence. I am the God who can do all things. All things, all things. I am so powerful that there is nothing that I cannot do. And this God comes to Abraham With a covenant and basically with a promise. And he says, I want to love you in a way. And we want to have this relationship. And this relationship is going to be called covenant. And we are going to enter into a covenant. But basically, I am promising to you so many things that you won't even believe. And Abraham says, who are you? I am the God Almighty. That's how it's introducing 
himself. It's all God's initiative. This God who maybe, you know, he spoke and galaxies, stars came into being, right? This God comes to little Abraham in the Middle East and he says, I am this God who created everything. He spoke, and we don't even know how many stars and galaxies are. But people estimate, right? They say, well, maybe there are 10 billion galaxies in the world. As much as we know, right? 10 billion galaxies. And if, if those galaxies are maybe like our galaxy, the Milky Way, then every galaxy has about 10, 10 billion stars on average. It can be 300 billion. We don't know. On average, right? And then how many stars are in this universe? I don't know, but the, the, the people say maybe the number of stars is 10 followed by 24 zeros. And this God who says, I am El Shaddai, the all-powerful, all-sufficient God, says, I'm coming to you. And just think about it. Think about it. In the same time, you know, people say there are more stars in the universe than there are grains of sand on earth. All the sand on all of the beaches, including the Great Lakes, Right? But then they, they say, but there are more atoms in one grain of sand than there are stars in the universe. Just think about that. El Shaddai, the all-sufficient God, all-powerful God, the God who can hold everything. He says, I want to come to you, Abraham, and enter into this relationship. It's like a marriage. I want you to be part of this relationship. And I'm going to commit myself to you. I'm going to make you promises. And the promises are love and, and prosperity. Have you ever thought how this God created everything? And, and how, how, about, how about the earth, you know, the earth on which we live? Not only the skies, but he is the one who put the earth together, right? Have you ever thought how deep are the oceans? How, how, how deep are the oceans? You know, if you have a scuba driver, uh, diving suit, you know, then you might go up to 40 meters. You know, if you think of feet, just multiply, multiply by three, right? Approximately by three. So that's how much a scuba diver, you know, if you take a, deep, uh, a deeper dive, the blue whales can dive up to 500 meters in the oceans. If you think of the sunlight, maximum sunlight can go to about 1,000 meters. That's about one kilometer. There's no more sunlight from there on. But you go deeper and deeper. The lowest point of the Grand Canyon, if you put the Grand Canyon in reverse, right, it will be like about 1828 meters, the Grand Canyon. And if you think of the highest mount, you know, the Mount Everest, it's about 8,800 meters. And by the way, James Cameron, you know, the, uh, the filmmaker, he went with a submarine to 10,898 meters. That's about 33,000 feet, I guess, deep down in the ocean. But it's interesting, in 1960, there was this guy, Don Walsh, that went even deeper, a little bit deeper. And if you want to go to the deep of the ocean, the bottom of the Mar uh, Mariana Trench is even deeper, 11,000 meters. This is the same God who put the stars in place and keeps and holds the universe and says, you haven't even reached my bottom. You haven't even seen what's at the bottom. Have you been there? Have you walked at the bottom of the oceans? Have you seen the animals that you haven't even seen? The species that are there you haven't even discovered? You have no idea what is there yet? So don't talk about the universe and, and this and this limit, you know, we say the limits, the other limits of the universe. He wants to say, well, those are limits for you. But, you know, I stretch the universe. 
I control the limits. I control everything. So don't think that you reach the limits. What limits? Have you banged on the walls? Why do you think that it stops there? Just because that's how far you can reach or see? And this God comes to Abraham. And God makes the covenant of grace with Abraham that impacts the rest of the Bible on all of human history. Everything else is, is basically starting and being designed and, and shaped by God so that he can fulfill this covenant with Abraham. And not only that, but God gives him a sign, which is the first time he gives him a sign. Up to this point, he just made promises. But now he gives him a sign. And he says, this is a sign that you will have in your body. And it's a sign that it will be bloody, but it will be a sign that you will remember every time. Every time you will be in an intimate place, you will remember my sign in your body. Circumcision. And everybody has to have, if, if you are a male, in that, in that, you know. And some people say, why only males? Well, because if, you know, people say, we don't know. But uh, if a male marries, then the two are one. So a sign for one is valid, a sign for two. But also, the, the, the thing is, God clarifies here. He says, not only the sign in your body, I'm going to even specify you. First time, he uses the word the land of Canaan I will give it to you. Up to this point was the promised land I was going to give you. A prom- but now he says the, the land of Canaan is going to be yours. And not only that, he names the son. He says, your son, you will have a son. And his name, you shall name him Isaac. First, first time. So throughout this Old Testament, we see that God will define his graceful covenant, great, graceful covenant relationship with his people, with all of the people that we call covenant people. With his promises, with his vow. It's like a three-part formula statement. And this is the covenant. He says, I will be your God. That's my covenant. I will be your God. From now on, you will have a God. And you will belong to me because I will be your God. And you, you will be my people. That's what I want. I want to be your God. I want you to be my people. And one of the third promises that is coming so often throughout the Old Testament, but also Jesus repeats it, it says, I will be with you. And the same thing Jesus tells us when he ascends to heaven. He said, go and you make disciples, but make sure that you remember, I will be with you. Always, throughout the ages. You are not alone, and we are not alone. And we have a God. And we are here because we are Christians That's our name. We are Christians. And we have a God. And this God has made his vows to us. That we will not be in the world people without an identity. What is your identity? You are a disciple. You are a son. You are a daughter of the most living God. You have a God and he is with you. And he wants you to call yourself people of God. What is the church? The church is the people of God. What are the people of God? The people of God are the church. And that's what we are. We are all sons and daughters of this high God. Who says, I am the all-powerful. El Shaddai. Omnipotent. Ruler of all things. And in Jeremiah, God says, God promises a new covenant. Because people cannot keep this covenant. Even this covenant of grace is so much grace. God says, I want to be your God. And I, I, I want you to be my people. And I will always be with you. But make sure that you understand what what this relationship involves. And they always break the covenant, right? So in Jeremiah 31, God promises a new covenant. 
in which God's laws will be written on our hearts, not on tab tablets of stone. God basically, through Moses later on, gives us laws and says, this is how you ought to understand living as my covenant people. But you see, even in, in Exodus, when, when he gives the laws, the first statement is, before he even mentions the law, he says, I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. That's who I am. Therefore, if these laws define my people, this is how you will define yourself. Your identity is that you serve this Lord most high. And this new covenant is one that speaks of forgiveness of sins. And not only that, but it implies a much deeper, greater knowledge and understanding of God. But it is still a unilateral, a one-sided promise. It is still a covenant of grace. Because God says, you know what? I tried. I tried to give you laws. And I tried to tell you how to live. And you tried to obey. But in the end, you proved that you break the covenant. So I'm, give you, I'm giving you a new way of looking of the covenant. And this is what Jeremiah says. These days are the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. You see, this relationship that God, that God establishes in marriage, husband and wife, mirrors the relationship between God and us. And in the New Testament, it's between the church and Christ. And he says, I was like a husband, but you betrayed me. I loved you like somebody who loves his wife, and yet you ran from me. But God says, I will put my law in their minds, in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. The same covenant. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And this time, it's not that I'm going to give them laws, but I will make sure that the laws are in their hearts, in their minds. It's inside them. And we as Christians, we believe that we have this covenant and the promises, the requirements of the covenant inside of us, you see. When we become Christians, we are also allowing the Spirit, God himself, to live in us. And the power of the Spirit creates in us, creates in us that knowledge the deeper knowledge of God's character, of his laws. And maybe you say, well, when is, how, do, how do I know? Just think about it. When you are tempted to sin, right? What prompts you from saying, this is a temptation. I need to abstain. I need to run from it. Because sin is like here, close to us. It's almost in, in everybody's stomach. There is sin, power to sin. And that's there forever. We, we will not get rid of it until we die. And that's our nature, that's our sinful desires, that, that's what, it's still our old nature that is not dead, is crucified hopefully, but is there ready to jump on an opportunity to drag us into sin. But there's something more powerful, hopefully all the time, but it's not happening all, right? And it's that spirit of the Lord that works in us, this awareness that God's law now is in our minds and in our hearts. And when we are tempted to, to sin, right, to hate back, if somebody hates us, the first temptation is to respond with hate. And the Spirit says, yeah, you can do it in your flesh. But if you let me rule you, right, you will walk in my steps, in walking in step, being led, walking and living led by the Spirit, not by the flesh. 
And Jesus established this new covenant at the Last Supper when he says these, roads to, these words to us. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. You don't need to be circumcised, the New Testament says. Because Jesus, you don't, there's no more, but because circumcision in a way proved that our flesh needs to be repaired. That we have something in our body. That we are not people that are perfect, but we are corrupted by the fall. And everything that is natural, we say, well, this is how things are. Well, the way things are today are not the way things got made. There is a fall that happened. And if you understand the fall, then you are understanding our sinfulness and our fallenness, our brokenness. The fact that everything we are is polluted by this sin. So we need something that is from outside. And that's why the circumcisions were reminding us to be God's people, to be God's people, to live with God and to live in His presence. You need to circumcise something. You need to remember that your flesh is not good. It has to be a transformation. So this cup of the new covenant is something that comes to us from Christ. And he paid for this cup because it's his blood. It's not anymore the blood of our body being circumcised, but it's the blood of Christ. The Lamb of God who is pure. And who says no more sacrifices, no more animals, no more the blood of the goats and the sheep and the rams and the doves. But one sacrifice. So this is the covenant that God says, I'm going to use the covenant. From now on, you will relate to me. And every time when we have the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that we have a God who covenants with us. And when you take that bread and you eat, when, when you uh, drink that cup, remember that you basically renew your promises to God and you remember His promises to you. That He will be your God, that you are His people, and He will always be with you. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Remember to drink this cup. Because you will remember what I did for you. You will remember that you live in this country, in this, in this universe, because I desire, I want. Because every second I decide that you will still be alive. And I want you to be with me, not only here, but for the entire eternity. This is just a little, just a short journey. The longer journey is after you die. Is a never-ending journey with me. But I want you to know from here that you have a covenant in God. And that's me who is faithful to you. So that's why God comes to us in a covenant. The covenant that is sufficient for us to carry. But then he also changes the name. Do you see that? He changes the name. So Abraham, which means he is exalted like noble by birth, becomes Abraham, which is father of host of nations. And that's why he is called today by many other religions too, the father Abraham, the father of the faithful. Because he is the father of the faithful, not only of those circumcised. So if you have faith today in God, you are an, an ancestor. I mean, you are a progeny in a way. You are a son of, of Abraham. Sarai becomes Sarah, which is the same meaning, princess. Just different pronunciations, Sarah, right? Instead of Sarai. But the change of name is changes their identity. I just want you to think, now we are at the Olympic Games. Maybe you saw the beginning days, you know, and stuff. But in 1960, there was this Olympic um, Games, and there was this Olympian, you know, the tallest guy there. And his name was Cassius Marcellus Clay Jr. And my point is that he was a Christian when he had his name. And he was a boxer, a famous boxer. And then he met Malcolm X. 
and heard about the nomination of Islam, and he said, I'm going to become a Muslim in the United States. So he changed his name so that today we know him by Muhammad Ali, right? But you see, other religions, not only Christian religions, they say there is power in the name. Because even the Muslims say, if you come to our faith, you need a new name. Because it says you have a new identity. You have a new start. You have a different history from now on. Your identity now is with our God, with our religion. And the same thing happens in Hinduism. On the 11th day, they name the kids. And this is a grandma whispering four times the name of the baby in one ear and covering the other one with a green leaf. And those are these different traditions. And usually the name starts with the letter that in their calendar, you know, happens to be in that day. So they pick up the letter and then they make up the name. In the Eastern Church, you know, this is a baptism of a baby. You know, you, you wonder sometimes, why do we use so much water here? These are dumped, you know, the kids. This is the Eastern Church, the church I came from in, in Romania, in Russia and stuff, you know. And there's a day when they say that it's, it's a day when you give the Christian name to the baby. And usually the baby has a patron saint because every day has a saint, right? So besides your, your name that your parents gave you, you also get a patron saint, you know, one of the saints. Let's say St. Francis or whatever like that. And look in the, in the New Testament. You know, Simon, son of John, becomes Peter, the apostle. And Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul, the apostle. And it continues throughout history. And you say, what about the popes, right? The popes today. Well, it was a guy, a pope called Mercurio. Mercurio in 533. And he said, how can I be a pope with a Greek god name, you know? I cannot be a Christian pope with, a, with the name of a god, Greek god. So he said, I'm going to change. I'm going to be called Pope John II. The first pope that changed the name. And he took the name of John. And Pope Francis today, you know, his name was George Bergoglio. But you know that there's another pope. The previous pope was Joseph Ratzinger, German one. His name was Pope Benedict XVI. And he's still alive. And interesting, he lives in Vatican, in one of those uh, quarters in Vatican, hidden so that nobody can capture him. But the only people that can visit him is the current pope and his personal assistant. Because he's so precious. And you can imagine him being captured by ISIS. Just imagine that, you know, right? So he knows too much. He's like one of these guys that has the nuclear code, you know, sort of to the church. Figuratively speaking, yeah. But this name change, you know, this name change. It's interesting that when, when God changes your name, you know, when you become a Christian, when we baptize somebody here, we basically launch them in this relationship with God. And when you come back and you testify and you profess your faith, you say, I believe, that's the profession of faith time, you basically make God the same promises that he made to you. God, you promised at my baptism you believe in my God. Now I promise that I will be your people. I will be your daughter. I will be your son. And it's interesting that in history... In history, this name, Almighty, changes from God the Father to God the Son. Once Jesus comes and becomes the Savior and then resurrects and goes to heaven, this is what he becomes. I am the Alpha and the Omega, in Revelation says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. The Almighty. So suddenly Jesus Christ, our Savior, becomes this Almighty. And that's why you see all of this. This is the paintings in the Eastern Church. When the Son becomes the Almighty. The, the one who is ruler of all things. The Lord Almighty. With the gospel, 
in the left hand, as you see. And the right hand is almost like these two fingers are touching because that's the sign. I control everything. I'm not sure if the, you know, Kung Fu Panda, you know, maybe they borrow something. But remember, they, he does a ding ding or something. I don't know how he says. But kaboosh, you know, that's what he says, the Kung Fu Panda. But, but the idea is here Christ rules all things. He is all-powerful in control because he now has every power that the Father had. And he rules all things. And it's interesting that he promises to us in Revelation, nothing impure will come in my kingdom in the city of God, the New Jerusalem, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So your name is someplace written down. You don't even know that there is a book of life that has your name. And it's interesting that it says... We all get a new name that we don't know. Now, that's our name. But when we go to heaven, it's like God gives a name to those who are victorious. In the Old Testament times and ancient times, if you were victorious in a battle, or if you won, like, let's say you were a gladiator, and you fought, and you won your liberty, you will get a precious stone. And this is what Christ tells us. To the one who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone. White stone was good. With a new name written on it. Known only to the one who receives it. Isn't it wonderful that besides your name you will have an eternal name too? That only you and God will know what name is. And it will be written on a white stone that you receive because you overcome. And it can be that you overcome the storms of life. It can be that you are in the middle of a struggle with your family that is disintegrated. Or maybe you are sitting in a hospital bed or at home and you wonder, Lord, am I going to overcome? And he says, just no. Regardless of where you battle, regardless of how deep the wounds are, how much you are bleeding, how much you are suffering, I have this covenant of love. I promise that I want to be your God. I want to be your God. I want to love you. And Jesus offers this covenant to you and to me this morning. And maybe you've been here, you are baptized, and he says, I want you to be my people. Would you make your profession of faith? He calls us to profess our faith, to say to him in that profession, to say, I want to be your daughter. I want to be your son. Would you call me your son, your daughter? Would you also put my name in that book of life? And that's what we do here. We come every morning, we confess our sins, and we say, Lord, we respond to your love with our love. We want to be part of this loving covenant in, in, in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is offering this covenant to you. He is the, om, the omnipotent one, the one that can do all things. And Jesus calls you by his name. He says, Mary or Joseph, I want to be your God. I want to be present. I want you to know that I gave everything for you. I came so that I could be with you for eternity. I could have stood and just watched the galaxies and, and fly through, through the many stars that I created. But I, I decided to come and be born in this stable in Bethlehem like a baby. In a, in a way, God handicapped himself for us. Instead of walking and doing all things, creating things in the universe or in other worlds that he might create. 
He said, I'm going to walk and learn how to take the first step on the dusty streets of Nazareth. And instead of watching further away how deep the galaxies and the universe goes or how deep the ocean goes, I decided to come and just look in the, in the eyes of my parents. Just receive the worship of the shepherds when I was born. Just walk with my friends as a teenager. I limited myself so that you can understand that this all-powerful God loves to be in a relationship with you. And that's why we are here, because we know God is with us. He says, I want to be with you. Always. Forever. So that's why he says, Johnny or Mary, come. And enter in this relationship. Enter in this relationship. Take my cup, because this cup is my blood of the new covenant. And whenever you drink this cup, whenever you accept my sacrifice, you proclaim my death. You proclaim my name. To be identified as a Christian today is to have an identity that many people hate. The culture looks at us as nuts, as cuckoos in many ways. Other religions want to persecute us. Christians are persecuted around the world just because they claim the name of Christ. And Jesus claims us as his own and says to the one who overcomes, just so you know, I will take your name and I will testify your name in front of my father and the angels. And I will say, Mary or John, he stood faithful. And it's not by your power. But it's by allowing the spirit to work in you, this transformation of the heart and of the mind. Allowing him to make you into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, the Savior, the ultimate conqueror, the ultimate hero. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks that uh, we have in Christ Jesus the hope that the covenant is true. In him we see that your promises came true, that you keep your word, that you want to be our God and you are willing to sacrifice yourself for us. So Jesus, you as the almighty God, the Alpha and the Omega, we ask that this day in our present day, you will give us to allow you to be our covenant God, to allow you to Fill us with the presence of your spirit so that we will walk from here knowing that you are ours, that we belong to you and you belong to us, and that nothing can separate us from your presence, nothing can separate us from your love. No sickness, no death, no powers, but we are secure in this covenant relationship with you. So we fully trust in you, in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand and receive the blessing of our Lord. As we leave this place, remember that through this covenant, the Father gives you this promise and he says, I will be your God. And I want you to be my people. Because through the power of the Spirit, to the love of Christ, the Son, and to the strong hand of God the Father, we can live as his covenant people on this earth. May you go in his strength. Amen.